It's the only gospel written by a Gentile. It's the third and longest of the four accounts, even longer than the book of Acts. We're talking, of course, about the Gospel of Luke. But just who was Luke? What is the legacy of his Gospel account for us today? Well, we've got plenty to talk about in an upcoming conversation that we're calling Discovering Luke. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is a lifelong student of the Middle East, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and maybe you wonder... How do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it is sometimes, quite frankly, challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with somebody from a Jewish background. Have you ever wondered how the quote-unquote professionals do it? Well, to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. Now, this will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks that you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. Well, as we start a new year, it gives us an opportunity to look over the horizon to see what might be heading our way. And by the way, Charlie, we did this last January. I have to ask, how well did we do? You know, John, we actually did pretty well. Our first story last January was on the pandemic, and we said we expect to see some light at the end of the tunnel, though we didn't look for an actual end to COVID. And that's about what happened. Our second story focused on the new government in Israel. Now, I wasn't optimistic on its long-term survivability. In fact, I thought it could very well fail before the year ended, and it did. Uh, The third story looked at Israel's conflict with Iran. Uh, Though a confrontation between the two was looming, I thought Israel's preference would be to do everything possible to delay or derail Iran's nuclear program without actually having to attack. And they did make it through the year without open warfare. And the final story last January focused on tourism. I said that hopefully travel procedures and COVID regulations would become more simplified and standardized as the year went on, which they did. And that was definitely a look forward that I'm glad materialized. All right, let's uh, look ahead to this year. And it seems to me like our top list of stories for 2023 once again has to include the possibility of conflict between Israel and Iran. Could this be the year when when they spiral down into open conflict, or can Israel continue to contain Iran without resorting to war? Well, the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that Israel will be forced to launch an attack. Iran keeps getting closer to reaching the breakout stage where they could race to assemble several nuclear weapons. Their stockpile of uranium, enriched to 60%, is growing, and it's just a short step from there to 90% enrichment, which is weapons-grade. Iran also announced the development of a hypersonic missile capable of reaching Israel in just 400 seconds. That's just over six and a half minutes. Right now, Israel doesn't have a system that could defend against that type of missile. Uh, If Israel suspects Iran is approaching the point where they could develop a nuclear weapon capable of being launched on such a missile, they would see that as an existential threat and they would then do everything possible to eliminate it. Now, until then, there are two constraints holding Israel back. The first is Hezbollah. If Israel does attack Iran, uh, they can expect Iran to retaliate, and that would include pressuring Hezbollah to launch tens of thousands of rockets and missiles from Lebanon, forcing Israel into a two-front war. Uh, The second constraint is the United States. 
Israel would prefer a unified attack with both Israel and the U.S. going against Iranian facilities, manufacturing missiles and enriching uranium. Now, it might take U.S. bunker-busting bombs to eliminate Iran's underground nuclear site at Fordo. The problem is the U.S. has been hesitant to launch such an attack. We might talk tough, but Iran doesn't believe the current administration would take that step. But having said that, should Israel believe Iran's about to become capable of building and launching nuclear weapons, they will act, even if they have to act alone. And that deadline is in the near future, perhaps even this coming year. I'm John Geiger, and our second look over the horizon involves Israel and the Palestinians. Will the conflict between them break out into another intifada in 2023, or can the violence be contained? Well, knowing that Palestinian Authority President Abbas can't hold on to power much longer, I think we're going to see Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and a younger generation of Palestinian youth push to confront Israel. They'll try to go as far as they can without provoking a massive Israeli retaliation, uh, similar to what happened in the last Gaza conflict. Uh, Israel surprised Hamas and then later Islamic Jihad by demonstrating how much they really knew about their terrorist infrastructure. Now, should these terror groups ratchet up the violence, they could force the Israeli government to act. And that attack will not only be against Hamas or Islamic Jihad in Gaza, it will likely involve a massive incursion into the West Bank by the Israeli army. You know, they could enter Hebron, Jenin, Nablus, and all the surrounding refugee camps to root out terrorist leadership and anyone who tries to stop them. Now, depending on the seriousness of the terrorist incident that precedes such an incursion, Israel would likely try to turn a deaf ear to U.S., EU, and U.N. pressure to stop and pull back, and that pressure would definitely be put on Israel. Hmm. Now, with the right-wing elements in Israel's new government, I expect them to act rather aggressively should something happen. It's been almost 20 years, John, since the end of the Second Intifada, and sadly, there's a new generation of Israelis and Palestinians who might need to experience the same impact felt by their parents before calm could be restored. Hmm. Boy, that's disturbing. Our third look into the future focuses on Israel and Turkey. Will the relationship between these two countries continue to improve, or could there be trouble ahead? What do you think? Well, Erdogan has said he wants the relationship between the two countries to improve, and he specifically said the election of Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't change that. So, on the surface, it seems as if Israel and Turkey could be back on track following a very tense and rocky 13 years. However, John, there are storm clouds on the horizon. Relationships between the two countries soured back in 2010 when the Freedom Flotilla Coalition tried to break Israel's blockade of Gaza by sending a blockade-running ship, the Mavi Marmara. Israel sent troops to stop the ship before it reached the blockade boundary. The troops were attacked as they rappelled onto the ship's deck. A firefight ensued with 10 Israeli soldiers wounded and nine activists killed. And that's when the relationship between Israel and Turkey just went south. Now, here's the concern for 2023. The Freedom Flotilla is again planning another incursion to break the Gaza blockade, and they hope to do that, they said, sometime this year. Now, should Turkey allow a ship to travel to Gaza, it'll almost certainly be stopped by Israel, and Erdogan would almost certainly be forced to back the Islamic militants behind the project. So keep your eyes and ears open for a so-called Freedom Flotilla heading to Gaza. That could determine whether the thaw in relationships will continue or will die a very sudden and painful death. And by the way, I need to add here that in spite of what the coalition says about Israel laying siege to Gaza, that's not the whole story. 
Israel set up the blockade to prevent weapons and war materials from being sent to Hamas. And that included military hardware from Iran being used to make rockets and mortars, cement being diverted from legitimate construction to build all their underground attack tunnels. Israel does allow in materials through two land crossing points, but they've learned from history they simply can't trust Hamas. And that's why that blockade is in place. From Moody Radio, this is The Land of the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger looking at stories we'll be following probably all year long. Let's take one last look at tourism. Will 2023 be another year of increased tourism in Israel, or could the situation again be disrupted, as it certainly was? Yeah, well, right now, tourism is shaping up to set new records. As a data point, many tour companies are now urging churches and groups to set up trips two years in advance. Uh, The short-term problem has been airline and hotel space, and thankfully, both are starting to ease. Airlines have added additional flights, and thousands of new hotel rooms are scheduled to come online this year. So in that sense, it looks like this could be a banner year for tourism, but there are potential problems on the horizon. Uh, We've mentioned the possibility of conflict between Israel and Iran and Israel and the Palestinians. Now, those kind of conflicts bring a temporary halt in tourism, at least until a ceasefire is arranged. Now, usually those disruptions, thankfully, are only temporary. But there are two other issues that could impact tourism. The first is the combination of inflation and global recession. The cost of a trip has been rising dramatically because of increased fuel and labor costs and Should we see a worldwide recession? Well, that could eat into the savings of those who otherwise might want to go. The second issue that could impact tourism could be a resurgence of health issues, including COVID, the flu, and RSV. Uh, This winter's flu season could be the most severe in years, and it's also possible a new strain of COVID could resurface. Now, people are less fearful of COVID now, but if we learned anything over the past two years, it's that we don't know what the future holds. Only God does. And maybe that's the best way I think we could end this look over the horizon. We need to remember the words of James 4. Uh, Now, listen when you say, today or tomorrow, we'll do this or that. You know, go to the city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. And then he says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. And maybe that's the best advice all of us can remember as we go into this new year, 2023. Hmm. Thanks, Charlie. Great update. And we'll be following these stories all year long. Hey, for somebody who is not aware, we are a digitally friendly broadcast, also a podcast, and a lot of benefits to listening to that podcast. And Charlie, pretty easy to access it as well. It really is. They can just come to our Moody website and uh, click on it right there. They can listen anytime. And that's what makes it so easy, so convenient for individuals. And that website is thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. Coming up, Discovering Luke here on The Land and the Book. It is the only gospel written by a Gentile. It's the third and longest of the four, even longer than the book of Acts. We're talking, of course, about the gospel of Luke. But just who was Luke? And what is the legacy of his gospel account for us today? Well, we've got lots of questions and some great answers next. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we meet with Luke, let's meet with a more contemporary expert who can help us share Messiah with our Jewish friends. So you and I know the gospel, believe the gospel, we understand the gospel. How do we explain the gospel in a Jewish context when we're talking with our Jewish friends? Greg Sabat, what's the answer? 
Well, John, I like to call this Christianese. We all have our little language. Justification, sanctification, blood of the lamb, son of God. We all use these verses. And people that aren't believers have no idea what we're talking about. Right. And I know for a fact because I went to a church once with a friend and it was like, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, shake hands. And there were these words that I had never heard before. This is you as, an, as a non-believer. As a non-believer. Yeah. And I think the best way that you should talk to Jewish people are in terms what they understand. Atonement, God, Messiah, repentance, Redeemer. They'll understand that. But if you start saying, you know, justified by faith, they'll have no idea what yeah. that is. So very basic and very simple and very straightforward. That's the conversation to have as you're explaining the gospel. That's Greg Sabat, who serves with Rock of Israel here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Joel Green is the author of Discovering Luke. He has served churches in Texas, Scotland, and California. And we're glad to have him with us today on The Land and the Book. Thanks for your time, Joel. Hey, thanks, John. Great to be with you. You know, the third gospel makes no claim as to its own authorship. So what is the evidence that Luke is the writer? Well, you're absolutely right. In fact, none of the gospels uh, name their authors. And so, I mean, the best you could say, I guess, is that these are given to us anonymously. And a lot of people think, and I'm one of them, think that the authors don't mention themselves because they want to focus not on on their authorship, but on the gospel, which Mm -hmm. is, Jesus Christ. And so in some ways, it's a a way of focusing or emphasizing the subject, the coming of Jesus. But with respect to the authorship of Luke, there is, of course, the reality that uh, Luke is known as a a partner or a a co-traveler with Paul, according to the uh, book of Acts. And uh, Paul, in a couple of his letters, actually mentions Luke as a fellow traveler, a fellow worker, he calls him. So there's there's that. But I think the most important evidence for thinking that Luke wrote Luke is that when, when names are attached to the Gospels in the second century, mm-hmm. no one is saying, hey, Luke didn't write that, I did. Or, <laughs> hey, I, I thought so-and-so wrote that. Uh, there's a tradition that is so strong that when um, the Gospel of Luke is associated with Luke, the third Gospel is associated with Luke, everybody seems to be in agreement. There's not a a big discussion about it. So even though they're anonymous, that doesn't mean people didn't know who wrote them. Mm -hmm. And uh, Luke seems to be the best candidate. Well, what do we know about Luke as a person? Well, (laughs) the truth is we know absolutely, uh, just about absolutely nothing. That is nothing that we don't get from reading Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Paul calls him a physician and calls him a a fellow worker, but we have to take account of the fact that a a physician in the first century is not at all what a physician is in the 21st century. Uh, A physician in the first century is really more of a more philosophical. You know, they they don't do experiments on bodies and and so forth. So they're working with what they think will be the case. Uh, they have viewpoints about the nature of the human body, but uh, it's it's not like you have someone in the 20th or 21st centuries being a physician. One of the things that happens in the early church is that 
Luke seems to be a problem because he's not an apostle, and yet his gospel is being put forward for inclusion in the canon of the New Testament. Yeah. And so people associate him in the early church, associated with Paul, uh, but Paul never treats Luke like a disciple. He treats him like a, a co-worker mm-hmm. or a, a fellow servant. And so Luke seems to have his own ministry, uh, his own movement around the country, around the area, and is not simply a part of Paul's entourage. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, joined today by Dr. Joel Green for a fresh look at the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel makes the point that the Gospel is not just for Jews, but this saving message is also for Gentiles. And it seems to me that uh, as 21st century Christians, we are at a disadvantage for grasping the full weight of this claim. Take us back to the time of Luke's authorship. Why was this message so radical back then? Well, even the Gospel of Luke, if you're reading, say, chapters 1 and 2, or if you move into the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2 there too, Luke is very much concerned with the restoration of God's people, Israel, and uh, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Luke and Acts are both important signs that God is restoring uh, God's people, Israel. But, and this is the crucial thing, the restoration of Israel in the end time there includes the embrace of the non-Jew, of the Gentile. In important ways, Luke makes that clear already in, especially in chapter two of the Gospel of Luke, where Simeon, the priest prophet, speaks over Jesus while he's an infant and declares him a light to the Gentiles. So there's already evidence early on that Luke is concerned with the spread of the good news with Israel, of course, but beyond Israel's borders, either culturally or politically, to include the Gentile world. And in some ways, of course, what Luke is doing is is describing, theologically describing, what is going on with the early church. Mm-hmm. It's engaging in a missionary effort that goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, but is uh, having some success among the Gentiles in Acts chapter 14 with uh, Acts chapter 17 in in predominantly Gentile world. And uh, Luke is laying the groundwork for that as well as uh, narrating it. You know, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is Luke's gospel the repository for the most detailed account we have of Messiah's birth? I think that's a really good question. Uh, You know, clearly Mark doesn't mention Jesus' birth. John doesn't mention Jesus' birth. Uh, Mark starts with the baptism of John. Matthew has some material about Jesus' birth, but from a pretty different perspective. If you read Luke 1, especially chapter 1, but moving a little bit into chapter 2 as well, what you see is how Luke has found parallels between the, the birth of John and Jesus, parallels with the birth of Abraham and Sarah's child, Isaac, and with other figures in the book of Genesis. In Mm -hmm. other words, in an important sense, Luke is saying, with John and especially then with Jesus, we have the fulfillment of what God has already promised in his interchange, his, his exchange with Abraham to be the father of many nations. So Luke takes you right back into Genesis 
you could say the same thing about Matthew. Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And mm-hmm. so he's taking you back into Israel scriptures. Uh, Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, is as it was foretold in Isaiah. And so he takes you back into Isaiah. And then, of course, the gospel of John takes you back even further. In the beginning was the word, takes you right back into Genesis chapter one. So they're all rooting their story in the Old Testament and beyond. But Luke is doing it in a way that takes you right back into the promises to Abraham. It's a unique gospel for sure. Luke, that's our focus today on the land and the book. As we talk with Dr. Joel Green, who has written Discovering Luke, only in Luke's gospel do we find the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. What should this tell us? Well, one thing it might tell us is that Luke has access to some tradition about Jesus, some stories about Jesus, some stories Jesus told that we don't imagine Matthew. Mark or John had. So he had access. And that's no surprise after you've read the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which tell about how Luke has, you know, essentially done his homework. Uh, He's done some research, done some investigation. And so he's bringing onto the stage some areas of interest, some areas of emphasis that you don't find in the other Gospels in quite the same way. And the two parables you mentioned are front and center, right? Uh, Luke 15, the three parables of the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, uh, the lost son, the the prodigal son. That's a key text that reminds us about how God says, and this is Ezekiel 34, God says that I will become their leader. I'll become their shepherd. I'll seek out and save the lost. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus, in a sense, puts himself in the place of the Lord and does just that in Luke 15, and the Good Samaritan. Likewise, he's, he's interpreting the Scriptures with respect to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, he's interpreting that in conversation with the legal expert. Uh, we might call him a, a lawyer, I guess, and demonstrating what it means to say that love your neighbor as yourself. And so that becomes another key emphasis for the mm-hmm. Gospel of Luke that you find in that parable, but, but elsewhere too. For sure. Well, my favorite scene in the entire Gospel of Luke is chapter 19, uh, where Christ insists on dinner with Zacchaeus, and Messiah boldly states his life mission, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Why are we modern folks so quick to say, hey, that's great for Jesus, but you know, that doesn't really apply to me. It's a, an important issue, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's very much Jesus, right? Because Luke 19.10, uh, the text you just quoted, again, is taken right out of Ezekiel 34. It, it tells us that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, is taking the role of God in seeking and saving the lost. But what that tells you is that Israel is suffering. This is Ezekiel. Israel is suffering because of bad, what we would call bad leadership, not because always of their own sins, but because they've been led astray by their own leaders. And so what Jesus is doing, Luke 19, is saying, I'm going to be their leader. And, you know, the same thing could be said about leadership among God's people today. Are we, in fact, seeking and saving the lost, or are we involved in, how do you say this, in, in losing people? 
hmm. in uh, causing people to to be led astray. It's important questions uh, that have to do with the nature of God's people and especially with the nature of Christian leadership. All right, last question. What is your favorite scene in all of Luke and why? And discovering Luke uh, picks this up and develops it, but I've become in the last few years more and more and more enamored with Mary's song, the what is called in Latin the Magnificat, that we sometimes sing or sing parts of. But it's Luke chapter one, verses forty-six to fifty-five, and discovering Luke, the the book we're talking about, develops this a lot in chapters one and two, and then in the chapters on. Luke's message, the last three chapters. But I mean, here you find this profound portrait of God as the God who remembers, the God who acts on behalf of God's people, uh, who acts with compassion, and who acts to restore. You also have, and this is the theme that you find in the middle of of Mary's song, the theme of reversal, or uh, we might be tempted to say upside down, but I think Luke would say right side up. Uh, things are already upside down. And so the powerful brought down from their thrones, uh, the humble raised up, the hungry, well-fed, uh, the rich sent empty-handed away. There's a reversal that takes place that that Jesus repeats in his sermon at Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, uh, good news to the poor, good news to the captives, good news to the blind, et cetera, et cetera. I think that begins to capture a lot Mm -hmm. of what's going on in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Well, lots more to explore, and you'll do just that as you pick up a copy of Discovering Luke by Dr. Joel Green, our guest. A link to the book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thanks for your time, Dr. Green. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. And we'll be back with some great questions and answers from our own Dr. Charlie Dyer next here on The Land and the Book. The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. John Geiger with you. Our host, Charlie Dyer, standing by to answer a big stack of questions. We're going to move through as many of them as we can. But before we do that, you have to ask yourself, how do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Maybe that's something you want to focus on in this new year. Well, because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it is sometimes pretty challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with somebody from a Jewish background. Have you ever wondered how the quote-unquote professionals do it? Well, to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supply you with tracks that you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, we'll begin with Peggy's question. She takes us to Luke 9, verse 23. She says, I've read it many times without wondering where the phrase take up your cross originated because I always assumed it came from the fact that Jesus had to carry his cross part of the way to his crucifixion. And this morning I realized that if Jesus had said this before the time he had to actually carry his cross, this phrase must have originated elsewhere. What do you happen to know, Charlie? 
Yeah, and actually the phrase did originate with Jesus. Now, in that particular passage, the key is to recognize what Jesus said to the disciples immediately before the verse. In uh, 9, 18 to 22, Jesus quizzed the disciples on who the people said he was and who they thought he was. Uh, Once Peter announced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ of God, Jesus then announced the reality of his coming rejection, death, and resurrection. Now, that same sequence can be seen in the parallel account in Matthew 16. And then Jesus challenged the disciples with the reality that following him involves self-denial, deny himself, submission, take up the cross, Mm -hmm. and willing servitude, continue following. Uh, Jesus also used this imagery on other occasions in, in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 14. Now, Jesus could refer to the cross, I think, because he knew he was going to die on a cross. In fact, he alluded to that in John chapter 3 and John chapter 12. Others might not have realized it at the time, but Jesus could use the expression because he was calling on his followers to follow in his footsteps. Now, there's also a second reason, though, I think he used this expression. The people in Jesus' day were familiar with Roman crucifixion. In fact, Josephus talks about a time when 2,000 were crucified at one time. During the crucifixion process, the condemned were made to carry the crossbeam to which they would later be nailed. This was designed to picture their final submission to the authority of Rome against which they'd rebelled. So in that sense, Jesus is calling on his disciples to recognize they need to submit to the authority of the King of Heaven as they willingly follow their Messiah, even to the point of death. By the way, it's a very graphic picture of what submission to Jesus could require. It's definitely not the God wants you to be happy and rich, fulfilled gospel preached by many today. Uh, Jesus was calling on his followers to submit and follow him in spite of the consequences they would experience. And it's that willingness to submit, even to death, that made them so fearless in proclaiming the gospel. Well, Charlie, that is truly a profound, if not painful, answer, but one we need to hear. Thank you for for your honesty there. Let's go to Lenny's question from 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. It says that an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized Saul. Now, did God simply allow this to happen, or did he purposefully order that spirit to attack Saul? You know, when it says there that an evil spirit from the Lord came to torment Saul, I take it to mean that this was something God permitted. You know, it's not that God directly sent an evil spirit to Saul, but perhaps more God took away the hedge of protection that he'd put around Saul and was allowing Satan to attack Saul in this fashion. I I see a parallel to this, by the way, and in God allowing Satan to attack Job. It was for a different reason there. Uh, But uh, the spirit terrorized or tormented Saul, and Saul apparently could only gain relief from music, and God allowed that to happen because it initially brought Saul into contact with David. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, and our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, working his way through a list of questions that have come to us by email. Here's one from Todd in 2 Samuel. How do we know Tamar was Absalom's full sister? How do we know her mother was Mekah? Yeah, and i got to start by reminding people, there are a number of ladies named Tamar in the Bible. So the one we're talking about here is the one in connection with the life of David and with his sons, especially Absalom. Now, there's no direct statement in the Bible, though, that says who Tamar's mother was. So we can't absolutely say she and Absalom were brother and sister rather than stepbrother, stepsister. But I think there are several clues in 2 Samuel that can lead us to believe that they were brother and sister. First, she's specifically singled out as the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David, the first time she's named in chapter 13. And then second, following her rape by Amnon, the Bible says she went and lived in her brother Absalom's house. Now, it's also true that in the same chapter, Amnon is called Tamar's brother, but specifically connecting Absalom and Tamar at the beginning of the story 
and then indicating she went to live with Absalom following the incident suggests they were more than just half-brother, half-sister. And finally, one other tiny detail suggests their brother and sister, and that's the fact that Absalom later named his only daughter Tamar, likely to honor his sister who apparently remained unmarried following her assault. Here's a question for my very good friend Russ Gaforio. He wants to know, has the burial site been found in Jerusalem for the kings of Judah and Israel from the Kings and Chronicles? Well, if you're taken to Israel today with a not-so-reputable guide, you'll be shown the actual tomb of David, except it's on the wrong hill. It's on the western hill, now mistakenly called Mount Zion. 1 Kings 2 makes it very clear that David was buried in the original city of David, in his city, and that's the small oblong-shaped hill south of the Temple Mount where the Gihon Spring is located. Now, that area was destroyed and rebuilt a number of times throughout Jerusalem's history, so we're not always absolutely sure where his burial site was. However, it appears to have been near the southern tip of that original city. Uh, The tombs for the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, well, we've never found those. They had several capitals, but the tomb of the kings of Judah evidently was in that southern little part of the city of David. Here's an interesting question from Kem. Do we have any indication from Scripture that those who were inspired to write what we know today as God's infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God, the Bible, did they know that they were writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I believe the writers did understand they were writing God's inspired Word. Now, while they didn't pause to say something like, hey, this is the inspired Word of God, you better pay attention, uh, there are passages that suggest that this is exactly what they understood to be happening. And here's, here's why I say that. First, In many cases, they have God himself speak in the first person in their writings as the ultimate author. If I remember correctly, the the phrase, thus says the Lord, is used over 450 times in the Old Testament to show that God is claiming to be speaking directly through the words being written. We also have clear evidence that the New Testament writers recognize God speaking directly through the Word of God. For example, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And the word he uses for inspired is theopneustos, which literally means God-breathed. In 2 Peter 3, Peter refers to the writings of our beloved brother Paul and then says some have foolishly distorted his writings as they do the rest of the Scriptures. My point there is that Peter referred to Paul's writings as Scripture and connected them to the other parts of God's Word. Now, as I look at this and other passages, it seems to me that there was an immediate recognition that the words penned by the writers from Moses through Peter and Paul and on to John in the book of Revelation bore the stamp of divine authority and were recognized as such by those who received them. Interesting question here. You think about all the names in the Bible that are unusual to our ears and difficult to pronounce. Do we know when last names began to be used? Well, I believe last names, at least as we understand them, came into being during the Middle Ages, and many of them grew out of family connections or trades. You know, my last name is Dyer, which suggests that somewhere back in the Middle Ages, my family was involved in the dyeing of fabric. Uh, we see the same thing in names like Smith, or Carpenter, Potter, Gardner, Tanner. Other last names came from family connections. Johnson was originally the son of John, and Erickson was the son of Eric. In biblical times, a similar method was used to further identify someone. So Joshua was identified as Joshua ben Nun, which in our Bibles is Joshua the son of Nun. He's described that way over 25 times. One skilled workman who helped build the furnishing for the tabernacle was Bezalel ben Uri ben Hur. Uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. 
Anyway, my point is that people in the Bible were often identified by providing the names of their father, and some were identified by their occupation, like Simon the Tanner in Acts 9.43. In short, the common way people were identified in the Bible by family connection or occupation is also the way people were identified through history, uh, and eventually those all morphed into what we know today as last names or family names. As always, we cover a lot of ground in this question and answer segment, maybe enough ground that you say, whew, I'd like to hear some of that again. Good news, you can. Our uh, podcast is waiting for you now at the website, thelandandthebook.org. And by the way, because I've just shared that with you, would you mind sharing that with a friend? Not everybody lives within range of a radio station that plays the program. We'd love for you to make the program possible for them as well as they check out that podcast at thelandandthebook.org. No need to go away. A powerful devotional is next here on The Land and the Book. I don't know where you're at with regard to New Year's resolutions. Some people resolve not to make resolutions. I generally try to make one or two and be realistic, but that's besides the point. Uh, this next segment here on The Land of the Book is, is going to take us to an interesting proverb. Charlie, where are we headed? We're heading to Proverbs 14, verse 4, uh, for no pain, no gain. And we'll get right to that after this thought from somebody who has traveled to the Holy Land had their life rearranged, their thoughts definitely refocused with regard to Scripture. Let's listen to this Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Barb from Marion, Indiana. And what I'll always remember about Israel is that as I looked at the locations, I could see Jesus. I could literally see him and the stories that I've known all my life through the Bible and Bible storybook. What I thought looked just like I imagined it is when I was on the Sea of Galilee and there in the boat and uh, looking out on the shore and I could see Jesus and his buddies out there with the fire going and, and everywhere I looked I could just see him and the scenes that I saw in the Bible storybook. Now I get out another Bible and I open up the maps and I look at that as I, I'm reading also. Well, it's that time of year when you see all these commercials on TV. People are now shedding all that great-looking holiday food for their workout clothes, and they're sweating, and they're, they're doing all kinds of things they said they were going to do to lose those pounds. And, Charlie, I don't know if I'm going to be one of those or not, but what are your thoughts on resolutions? Oh, John, I, I, I'm all for resolutions. I just never seem to be able to follow up on them. <laughs> but uh, in reality, we know the, the new year has now started. I believe many people are happy to see the old year out of their rearview mirror. Last year did have you know, its share of struggles and heartaches, and uh, it's tempting to see the new year as a clean slate, that blank canvas on which we can paint a new vision of ourselves in the future. But the new year also brings hidden obstacles as well as opportunities. So what can we do to prepare? Well, to help get this new year started off on the right foot, I'm beginning a four-part series I'm calling Proverbs to Live By for the New Year. We're heading to the Old Testament site of Megiddo, which guarded the international highway as it entered the Jezreel Valley. This is the site of biblical Armageddon, but we're not here to talk about prophecy, though that's always a fascinating topic. Now, we're here to hike back to the ancient stables uncovered at the site, so lace up your sneakers and follow me. Now, many fascinating objects were discovered at Megiddo, 
but today we're focusing on the stables that once housed the chariot horses used by the kings of Israel. Now, we're not sure if it was King Omri or Ahab or Jeroboam who built these stables, but they were definitely in use during that period of time. As we arrive at the stables, look at the sculptures of the horses and the chariots that have been added. I think they do help visualize how the site was used in the past. I also like these old stone mangers that are on display. Some are reproductions, but others are 2,700 years old. These stone mangers, or feeding troughs, have lasted a long time. Just a few weeks ago, our churches focused on the Christmas story, with baby Jesus being placed in a manger by his mother. And we picture the babe in a nice wooden creche, but the feeding trough that held the Savior was almost certainly chiseled out of stone. Stone was far more plentiful than wood, and animals don't nibble on the solid stone. It's easy to visualize Jesus lying in a stone manger like those right here. But we're not here to focus on the birth of Jesus either. I want us to look back 900 years before the time of Jesus to the time of wise King Solomon. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon provides practical advice for living wisely, but he often masks the advice in Proverbs that require careful study to discern their ultimate meaning. And as we look at this empty feeding trough, Proverbs 14.4 comes to mind. There Solomon wrote, Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty, but from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. Now this proverb focuses on the interplay between something being empty but clean and something being full but messy. Now this proverb contains more than meets the eye, so keep looking at the manger while we sift through the verse to determine its meaning. Solomon starts with an apparent truth. If you want a clean manger, don't own any oxen. If you own oxen, you have to constantly fill the manger with hay or grain to feed those beasts of burden. And they inevitably push grain out of the manger and onto the stable floor as they stick their noses into the feeding trough and try to scoop out the food with their tongues. And while Solomon has us focusing on the front end of the beast of burden by picturing the manger, anyone who's been around farm animals knows the food to fertilizer cycle that takes place. It's not just the manger that gets messy. The animal's stalls also need to be mucked regularly. Today we can hose them out, but back in Solomon's day, it would take a shovel, a bucket of water, and back-breaking work to clean up after their evening meal. So the first part of this proverb makes sense. If your goal in life is a clean manger and a clean stable, then don't fill it with oxen. Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty or clean. However, Solomon then adds the second part of the proverb, the contrast. But from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. Oxen generate a mess that needs to be cleaned up, but they also pull the plow that breaks up the soil for planting, and they help thresh the grain to separate the wheat from the chaff, and they pull the cart that transports the grain back to the barn. Oxen multiply the farmer's productivity. The word here translated much is used over 150 times in the Old Testament, and it has the idea of numerous, many, a great quantity, or an abundance. It's not just that the oxen provide a minor boost in productivity. They were a game changer when it came to the amount of land that could be put under cultivation and the amount of grain that could be harvested. So do you want a clean manger or a full barn? Are you willing to put up with some day-to-day -day hassles and inconveniences if it will generate an abundant harvest? Now, don't roll your eyes at me. I can see that look in your face. You know, back where I grew up, this is where someone would respond by saying, what do you think? Did I have stupid written on my forehead? Of course I'd be willing to put up with some inconvenience to have a full barn. Cleaning the manger and mucking out the stalls is a lot better than starving while sitting in an empty stable. 
And I can almost see Solomon smiling as he listens to your answer. You see, this proverb is for more than just farmers. It's for all of us as we face this new year. If it hasn't already started, before very long, this year is going to become crowded with unexpected interruptions. And your calendar will get messy and minor annoyances and financial issues and medical problems and family disruptions will soon mess up that nice, clean manger of your life. The real issue is, how will you deal with all those problems? It's so easy to focus on the problems and become irritated or discouraged or frustrated. But the point of Solomon's proverb is to look beyond the minor inconveniences, to remember the long-term benefits. So what are the benefits of all the problems and interruptions that are about to come pouring into your life? Well, the Apostle Paul provides the answer in 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. He said, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The farmer puts up with the messy manger by remembering the ultimate goal, the harvest. And Paul tells us we can endure our light and momentary troubles by also focusing on the harvest, the eternal glory. Someday, perhaps soon, we will stand before the Lord to receive His reward for our faithful service. And by focusing on the ultimate harvest, rather than the temporary struggles and inconveniences, we can see our current troubles from heaven's perspective. Just remember, the choice is simple, a clean manger or an abundant harvest. Thanks, Charlie. Really appreciate those insights. And we're loving this series in Proverbs. Uh, these are Proverbs to live by in the new year. Uh, how many of these are there going to be in the series? I want to devote the whole month of January to these Proverbs, so four of them in all. Oh, that's great. Charlie, for somebody who is just new to this program and they'd like to share it with a friend, what's a great way to do that? I'm thinking about our podcast. Uh, that's a great way, John. You know, if they listen on a radio station, it's wonderful. But if they don't have time or they miss it on the station, a podcast is an excellent way. They can just go to our website, click on the uh, Listen Live, and at any time, at their convenience, they can listen to the program or listen again to the program if they want to hear it a second time. All right, Charlie, you mentioned our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Some people have never, ever been there. What do they find when they visit thelandandthebook.org? Well, in addition to the podcast, they can find information about us, about some of the books that we've written, about the upcoming guests. Uh, all the information is there, and it's a great place to visit and learn more about the land and the book. And we'd love to hear from you, by the way, any old time about anything that's on your mind. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Maybe you can think of a story where God has used this program in your own life. Maybe it's a, a Sunday school lesson or a conversation with a friend. Whatever it is, share it with us in your email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Well, that'll do it for today's program. I'm John Geiger on behalf of our team, Dan Anderson and Charlie Dyer. Thanks for listening to The Land of the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.